Thank you for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources or to read her blog, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. Welcome to our 18th lesson in the book of Revelation. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, I thank you so much for all that you've said to our hearts over these last weeks. And I pray that as we bring it all to a conclusion today, you would speak. Holy Spirit, that you would be the one to lead us into all truth and that you would make the difficult things plain and that you would help us with our questions that perhaps are not answered, that we would just be able to trust you in all things. Lord, we ask this to the praise of Christ's name and for his kingdom. It is in Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. Over the past weeks, we've covered the book of Revelation and certain questions have arisen concerning the timing of some of the events that are believed to take place around Christ's return. And I promise to conclude our study by looking at some of the different views concerning two end time events, the rapture and the millennial kingdom. The word rapture doesn't actually appear in the Bible at all, but rather this English word comes from the Latin word rapio, meaning to be caught up. Paul taught in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 to 17, that at Christ's return, the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. And he says, the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. The rapture is really when believers who are still alive on the earth at the time of Christ's coming are caught up to be with Jesus where he is. Paul made it clear that as this happens, our living bodies will be changed into immortal, glorious bodies, stating in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 50 to 54 that we must receive glorified bodies at Christ's return, for flesh and blood as we know it cannot inherit the kingdom of God because the perishable cannot inherit the imperishable. He added that Christ followers who are alive at Christ's return will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and the living will be changed. Now, there is really much debate as to when this miraculous event will occur, and we'll cover more about that in a moment. But it is worth noting that some believe that though the rapture is associated with Christ's return, that it's a different event just prior to Christ's second coming to earth. Whatever the case, the Bible does teach that the rapture will be secret and instant, whereas the second coming of Christ will be visible to all and will not occur until certain other end-time events take place. We know that the final seven years before Christ returns are known as the tribulation and that this will be a time of great suffering on the earth. 
In Revelation, we noticed a lot of similarity between what is happening there and what we know occurred when God's people were in captivity in Egypt. In the days of Moses, when God's people were oppressed by an evil world power, the Lord sent plagues upon their Egyptian tormentors to prove that the gods of Egypt were really false. Judgment after judgment fell until God's people, the Jews, were finally delivered. Similarly, during the time of the tribulation, evil will dominate the earth in the form of a global government that will oppress God's people. And as the Lord did with the plagues of Egypt, God will send several judgments upon those who have rejected him. As we have seen, two-thirds of these final judgments spoken of in Revelation are partial in their effects, for through them God seeks to turn people's hearts toward him. For it is not God's will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Unfortunately, though, as it was with the Egyptians in Moses' day, it seems that people's hearts will only get harder. Many people, believing that the whole tribulation is the time of God's wrath, hold to what is called a pre-trib view of the rapture. They maintain that the church will be caught up to Christ pre or before these final seven years of trial. However, I must say that there are also those who hold to a mid-trib view of the rapture, meaning that the church will depart at the three-and-a-half-year mark the halfway point of the tribulation, just before the time of greatest misery. There are also, though, many biblical scholars who believe the church will not be raptured out of, but will rather be delivered through the tribulation. And they point to the repeated calls in Revelation to be alert, to be prepared, to be aware, and to be faithful to Christ to the very end. It seems whenever I speak on this subject, people want to know which view I hold. And I always jokingly tell them that I'm a pan-tribulationist, which is something they've never heard of, because I believe it'll all pan out in the end. (laughs) It really will work out in the end. But that being said, there is an important truth for us to hold on to, which is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9. There we're assured that those who trust in Jesus Christ are not appointed to or meant to suffer God's wrath, but rather that we're to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, because Jesus bore all of God's wrath for us when he died upon the cross. As Christ followers, we know that if we're not saved from the tribulation, we will be saved through it. For God has promised never to leave us nor forsake us. And just as he was with Israel on her exodus from Egypt, he will be with his people on their exodus from a world controlled by sin.
Now, I know that we'd all like to hold to a pre-trib view of the rapture, but to be honest, I think many people see that view as a kind of get-out-of-the-mess card, and they laugh at the fact that they won't be here to see those days of severe trial. But there's a danger in holding too closely to that view, because I think it often makes us less compassionate towards others, and it also sets us up for potential terrible disappointment if we're wrong. A close friend of mine once told me of missionary friends of hers who were forced to hurriedly leave China in the 1940s. Because they'd so firmly taught a pre-trib version of the rapture, apparently many of their Chinese converts fell away from the faith when Chairman Mao took over. When Chairman Mao took over. Why? Because they believed they'd missed the rapture and that they must not have belonged to God at all. Now that just grieves my heart at their sorrow and loss. We cannot hold to our theories too tightly. I'd rather make the mistake on the side of us being prepared for the long haul and hope to be wonderfully and gratefully surprised to find us in heaven before we'd expected than to count on an early release, only to find out that it would take a lot longer than we thought. Irrespective of when the rapture occurs, though, we know that there will be believers on the earth during those final years before Christ's second coming. Some of those holy people will be Jews who've come to accept Jesus as their Messiah, and some will be of Gentile heritage, for there will be people who come to faith in Christ even if we as the church are gone. One other aspect of Revelation that has several different views as to the timing of it is the thousand years reign during which Christ is said to reign on earth with those who have followed him being judges over the nations. Now we know that the revelation God gave to John did not always follow a linear timeline. And so with regard to Christ's millennial rule, there are actually three different views as to when Christ will return in relation to the thousand years. Previously, in our study of Revelation, we took a premillennial view, which holds to a more literal interpretation of the text. In this view, Christ returns at the end of the tribulation, bringing his holy ones with him. They will rule for a thousand years, during which time Satan shall be bound. King Jesus would be on his throne, his enemies would be subdued, and a kingdom of righteousness would be in effect. At the end of the thousand years, Satan would be released once more to deceive the nations, ultimately ending in his final defeat, followed by Christ's judgment of all who do not belong to him. Not only does a premillennial view fit the text of Revelation, but those of us who have previously studied Daniel together know that this view also ties very well with the dream given to King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 2. There we saw the final unstable world empire of the Antichrist shattered by Christ and his kingdom that grew to fill the whole earth.
Generally, premillennialists maintain that as Christ's first coming so precisely matched the prophecies about his birth, that it is probably wise to believe that the vision of Revelation will also be fulfilled literally. The second view of the thousand-year reign takes a less literal view. Known as the post-millennial view, this interpretation expects Jesus' return post or after the thousand-year rule. In this view, the thousand-year rule of Christ and his people is not seen as being a literal thing, but rather a spiritual one. Post-millennialism holds that Satan was bound when Christ died on the cross and that Christians rule in a spiritual sense even now as we spread the gospel to the nations. In this belief, there will be a time of increasing and more widespread peace and prosperity before Christ's return. That comes from great numbers of people converting to Christianity, having the effect of transforming society. After that reign of peace and blessing, Jesus Christ will then return. In this view, Satan is currently bound and Christ and his people already reign over the earth. However, some do point out that this does not seem to line up with what Peter taught in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, where he urged the church to be self-controlled and alert, warning that our enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Paul also warned the church in Ephesus in Ephesians 6 verses 10 through 12 to finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. He said to put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle, he says, is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, these statements suggest that neither Peter nor Paul saw Satan as currently being bound. In fact, on the contrary, they saw him and his army as being very active indeed. The post-millennial view was a very popular view before the Second World War, when mission work was prolific and successful, and people presumed it would be ever more so as time progressed. However, once Hitler killed 11 million people, many church people began to reevaluate their position on Satan being bound. The final view of amillennialism holds that there is no millennium and that Revelation's reference to the thousand years is purely symbolic. This view does not take the promise in Isaiah 9 literally when it states of the Messiah, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this.
Amillennialists hold that Christ Jesus will not literally sit on King David's throne, as Isaiah seems to say, and that his people will not rule on the earth at all, but rather they think that the souls of believers who have died already rule with Jesus in heaven. They also maintain that the second coming will happen at the time of one general resurrection, and that's despite the fact that Revelation itself mentions two different res- resurrections. Mentions two different resurrections in Revelation 20. There, in Revelation 20, verses 4 through 6, John speaks of those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received the mark on their foreheads or their hands. We are told that these individuals who refused to deny Christ came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. And John specifically states that this is the first resurrection and that the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. Confirming in verse 6, Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Amillennialists believe that it is at the time of the general resurrection that there will be an obvious rapture of the church before Christ then goes on to judge the world before he finally ushers in the eternal state in heaven. Surely we will have our questions answered soon enough when he comes. But for now, it's worth understanding that many sincere godly Christians have differed over the interpretation of these matters over the years. And so we should perhaps hold to our own opinions with humility, knowing revelation has taught us that we can have confidence in Christ because he is utterly trustworthy and he shall have complete victory in the end. We can face all kinds of trials with courage, knowing that life is not all about the here and the now. As we wait for the Lord, we are called to stand with courage in the face of evil. We are to obey Christ, resisting social pressure to turn away from him until the very end. He is coming soon, and those who follow him, whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, have a better future to look forward to. Over the years, as I've taught Revelation, people have asked me again and again, how long have we got until all of this is fulfilled? And perhaps the best answer to that is a lot less time than we used to have. Though we may not be able to understand everything yet, we're most certainly getting closer to all of this being a reality. I mean, think about it. When people taught the book of Revelation even a hundred years ago, there were many things they struggled to make sense of that are now easy for us to understand. For example, you remember we were told in Revelation 11 that at one point God has two witnesses who preach his word against the Antichrist in the last days. And John tells us that the two witnesses are killed and that people the world over simultaneously are able to view their dead bodies as they lie in the street for three days. 
Now, decades ago, no one would have imagined that that could possibly be literal. For how would the news travel across the world that quickly? Even a few years ago, when I taught Revelation, I would say that probably CNN and the news agencies would be there to cover the event. But truth be told, Today, it will likely be tweeted or live-streamed on social media faster than any news agency could ever get it out. Similarly, I could never understand before how groupthink would become so powerful, that people the world over would be willing to be marked as a follower of the Antichrist and his world system. I mean, why would a mark even be necessary? Well, after having experienced a global pandemic, it's not difficult to imagine people accepting the need to be marked if it is also somehow linked to who is safe to be around. Now, please hear me when I say that at this point, I don't think that we're quite in the time Revelation is speaking about yet, because for one thing, There's no global leader yet, and the mark of the beast is certainly associated with submitting to him. However, like many others, I do see that what we're going through now is a sort of a rehearsal for what is to come. Anti-Christian sentiment also seems to be on the rise. Many people around the world seem to be increasingly angry and rebellious. There are natural disasters, wars and rumors of wars. And perhaps as Jesus said in Matthew 24, all that we experience are just the beginning of the birth pangs. Whatever the case, we need to persevere and not grow weary of doing good. No matter the hardships we're called to face, we cannot forsake Christ as our first love. We're to guard against sinful practices and false teaching. Being faithful to Christ, even to the point of death, knowing that he will give us life as our victor's crown. He promises to provide hidden manna for our needs. He promises to strengthen us. He promises that the names of the overcomers will never be blotted out from the book of life, for he has placed before us an open door into his presence that no one can shut. God's name is written on us. We are his ambassadors, helping others to realize that he wants them to open the door of their own hearts to him. For it is only those who follow Jesus Christ that receive the complete blessing of God in the end. The second death will have no power over those who are cleansed by his blood, for they shall have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city of God, the new Jerusalem. This vision given to John has not only been a revelation from Christ about what shall be, it has also been a revelation of who Jesus Christ is as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And now as we close, I want to focus on some of the things we've learned about Jesus from just the opening chapters of this book. And I want it done as a declaration of our worship. He is Jesus, the faithful and true witness, the firstborn from the dead. He is the ruler over the kings of the earth, the one who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood.
He has made us kings and priests. He is the one who has glory and dominion forever and ever. Jesus is coming with clouds of glory. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the Lord who is and who was and who is to come. He is the Son of Man. He is the one who lives and was dead and who is alive forevermore. And Jesus has the keys of Hades and of death. He is the one in the midst of the churches, the one with the sharp two-edged sword. He is the Son of God who searches the minds and hearts of mankind. As the rewarder of men's works, he is holy, he is true, he has the key of David, and what he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. He is the Amen, the beginning of the creation of God. He has created all things, and by his will they exist. He is the one who sits upon heaven's throne, he is almighty. He is worthy to receive glory and honor and power and praise. Jesus is the one, the only one, who is worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. He is the lamb who was slain and yet lives. He is the redeemer of mankind and he is the victorious king of kings and lord of lords. This is the God whom we serve. Let us stand as we wait for his coming. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for all that you have revealed to us over these past weeks about who Christ is and what shall be. Lord, I pray that you would fill us with the Holy Spirit and that you would give us great power to stand for you in the coming days. Lord, we know that you have called us lamps on a stand and we know that lamps are not used in the daytime. They are not for the day. Rather, lamps are for the night. Lord, you have created us to operate in darkness and in that dark place to hold out the light of life and to hold out the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who are perishing. I pray that you would give us every strength that we need to do that and to be your faithful and true ambassadors, no matter what lies ahead, to the praise and glory of Christ's name and for the extension of his kingdom. Let it be in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God bless you, and I hope you'll join us again for another study in the Word. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at intheword.com.